Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together as your church, do something a little bit different, uh, and, and just you know, be allowed to be a place where we ask questions, sometimes very hard questions. Sometimes the answers are, who knows? We don't know. That's just a mystery to us. Uh, I pray that we'd have the humility to admit when we don't know. I pray that we'd have the, cur- the courage to ask questions because we want to know. And that all of it, uh, we would seek you to be our guide, our wisdom, and our truth. And so we thank you for this and for this day. We thank you for dads and, uh, again, all the blessings you bring into our lives. We just want to praise you now in your awesome name. Amen. Nice. Pastor Scott, it's all one, you. One thing I forgot to mention, um, you only need to send your question in once. Um, <laughs> we won't get to all the questions, so that means that I've gotten it and chosen not to ask yours. Um, <laughs> No, no subtlety there. All right, yeah. No, we got to be direct. Okay, Matt, if God knows where we will, will eventually end up, what is the point of living on earth? <laughs> All right. Oh, man, alive. You know, I mean, remember that whole humility say we don't know? We don't know. Uh, here's a little bit of a theory that I have with this. I, you know, I think... True, God knows the future. I think God wants to create this dynamic that is interactive with us in his creation. I think that's part of it. And I think part of us living on earth, uh, in fact, a pastor friend of mine said this recently. I like the way he said it. He said, God has this on earth, and he allows the conflict and the suffering and the trial that we have in this life because it forges us into being the kings and queens of the life to come, so to speak. Uh, so the, the character that we, we really develop, this is kind of that pressure cooker where do we develop this eternal character, right? Uh, we've talked before as a church as far as, uh, you know, believers go to heaven, but not everybody's going to receive the same reward in heaven based on how they live on this earth, right? So if you're using your gifts more, you're serving Christ more, you're, you're storing up treasure in heaven as Jesus talks about, well then heaven for you is going to be different than if you just barely get by, Jesus isn't really that much of a focus, you're just kind of doing your own thing for the most part. First Corinthians 3 says, man, those guys, they get in, but they have like the smell of smoke on them in the process. They have nothing to show for their life. And so this life is an opportunity to... Uh, Again, develop what the life after is going to have for you. That isn't some existentialist heaven. That's just the way God has described it. It's, uh, you know, rewards have, you know, greater merit. Uh, Lack of rewards mean less merit in eternity. So this life then is the opportunity to kind of grow, groom, and develop things for the life to come. Uh, And I think that's both in, like we were saying, storing up treasures in heaven, but it's also facing the hardships and challenges of life. Uh, and the more we trust God in those hardships and challenges, the more we respond like Christ would have us respond in pain and suffering, the more God says, I reward that. I reward that. Versus if we don't, right? We just kind of get mad, get bitter, get angry. We, we kind of go the way of the world on that. Then there's just no reward for that. So those are the reasons we, we still stick around on this planet. All the other philosophical elements of that, I have no idea. I have no clue how that works as far as God's sovereign and he knows, but he still gives us free reign and responsibility. I don't know that. But the reward factor and the developing of character factor, those are pretty integral to that process. Well done. Thanks, Scott. Um, Does God love Satan? No. Um, You're like, but God loves everybody. That's his job. No, it's not. Um, Here's the deal, right? So you go back to kind of the the beginning roots of, of God's great foe, right? So 
here's this being that God creates. He's a created being. He wasn't always. He's a created being. Uh, we see in the Old Testament that he was the highest cherub of heaven, had all these abilities and skills, and his job was this kind of like uh, the steward of all that God held dear. So you had the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, create Lucifer. He is this guardian of the angelic realm, and he rebels, and he rebels in a huge way. He wants to be God, set up his throne, take over the place, right, and, and just kind of be new management. God says, no way, there's this great angelic war. Matter of fact, this is something we're going to do as a series in 2014, so it'll be kind of cool to go through all that. Um, but from that, there was, there was a, a, a driven animosity, not that God is like, I just lost it, I'm so mad. It's not like that. God is holy, he is just, he is firm, and because the enemy is unredeemable, he's unredeemable, um, there is no reason or need for God to have love toward the enemy. In this case, Satan, I don't mean our enemies. Uh, God loves our enemies. He loves you know, those who are opposed to him. He so loved the world that he sent his son. So human beings, God's good with. But it's different in the angelic world. There's no hint in the Bible that angels that fall are are savable, redeemable. Jesus didn't die for demons. Jesus didn't die for Satan to, to see them converted. So it's just a clear dividing line. There's no reason, room, or need for God to have love toward that enemy because there's no potential for redemption toward that enemy. I know that kind of throws us off a little bit, but uh, it's not to say God didn't ever love him. He did. And when those lines were drawn, they were eternally drawn lines, right? Not of which God chose. God didn't choose to, to go to war with the enemy. The enemy chose to go to war with God. And so at that point, the sides are just drawn as they are. And God and his holiness and justice doesn't have any need for or any requirement of love toward Satan in that way. So it's just a drawn line, kind of an end of story. And now the narrative plays itself out to the final conclusion. Terrific. Um, in view of the recent changes in laws regarding marijuana, what is the Christian's view, and what do we tell our children? Oh, bro, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you got any Fritos, though? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's all the same still. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, sometimes we go, oh, the law changed, so now did the standard change. Standard didn't change just because the law changed, you know what I mean? And I think that's something to kind of keep in mind, too. We go back to like uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I've got people in my life that I love, they'll say, but dude, it's not wine, it's weed, and Jesus made weed. Um, <laughs> dude, he made poop too, I'm not smoking it. Um, so, nor slapping it into my brownies, all right? So, that would be a fun trick. All right, so, um, so it, it's still the same. I mean, the, the whole point behind that is, is the idea of you know, when Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with spirit, he's saying, don't be controlled by X, but be controlled by Y, right? So don't be controlled by whatever the substance is, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So I, I think you can take that at least as an applicational principle and say anything that controls you, anything that inhibits you, anything that has that kind of reign over you or, or re reduces your ability to reason or be thoughtful or whatever else, uh, that is something that you will do well to not partake of, right? Um, you know, again, now the, the trick is, like with alcohol, there's a threshold between, you know, uh, just enjoying the fruit of the vine and, hey, can somebody pick up Timmy and drag him out because he threw up on himself. There's, you know, there's bandwidth to get from one to the other. With weed, it's kind of tough. It's not like somebody's like a recreational, like, that's a half a toke, man. I don't get a buzz. I just like to smoke. Um, you know, so, so I think at that level, you're only, like, weed is kind of the thing where you're either doing it to get stoned or you're not, 
Where alcohol, it's not like you're either doing it to get drunk or you're not. You, there's a middle ground in there. And I think that's a lot harder to find with weed. Now, I'm talking purely recreationally, all right? When you get into, well, what about for my glaucoma? You know, I'm like, I, I think you're lying still. But, um, you know, I think you just want to get, I think you just want to buzz. Uh, but, hey, fine, whatever, each his own. But on the, the, the medical side, I, I'm personally, this is just me. This is not the position of Redemption Church. If somebody's like, Redemption Church believes. No, Matt Boswell just on his own, foolishly sitting on a leather seat said, um, I, I just don't have a problem with that. I, you know, really, I, I think on the medical side, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. And, and you look at some of the, the narcotics we pump into our body in comparison, I think, I think this alternative is not a bad alternative, really, frankly. So that's just me. Um, but on the casual side, yeah, I, I don't th- see how you can do it, just kind of enjoy it, but it doesn't begin to, to lower your inhibitions and cause problems. So that's my, my personal take on the weed, the skunk weed, if you will. Good to know. Good to know. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm sorry, dude. I know you said it was your glaucoma. I got it. I'm sorry. Hey. I, you know. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, why did God give us pain? Uh, go back to answer A. Um, you know, I, pain is a weird thing. Pain is the greatest teacher. Pain is the greatest teacher. And um, we, we, every, I mean, I, I talk to people who have had tremendous pain, um, you know, a, a physically abused growing up or, um, you know, the pain of losing a spouse or just different things. And, and, you know, especially when they've been able to go through the pain, come out the other side, kind of reflect on it, they'll say that that shaped them more than anybody, anything else in their life. Now, here's the thing I want to say about pain that's really important. I think pain has the power to shape positively or negatively. Um, if we face pain with a negative spirit, we get bitter and angry and this isn't fair and screw everybody else around me and, you know, life isn't just and everything else, it will shape you into a bitter, angry, dark person. It has so much power to shape. It'll shape you into the very kind of person you never wanted to be. On the flip, if you receive pain as the potential to shape deep character, to cause you to reflect on what's truly important in life, it'll shape you in a very powerful and positive type way, right? So pain always shapes. Pleasure doesn't shape. It just doesn't shape. I mean, nobody like takes the family trip to Disneyland and says, that changed your character, Jimmy. You know what I mean? Like, you will grow up to be president because of the Matterhorn. You know, I mean, like, it doesn't happen, right? Pleasure doesn't shape us. Pleasure's awesome to have. I go back to Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes is eat good food, drink good wine, enjoy the wife of your youth, enjoy the little things in life because life is ultimately pain. So he says, enjoy the little things, but he says in there, let the big painful things shape you, right? Let them shape you. Let them develop you. Um, receive those things as an opportunity. That's why he says it's better to go to a house of mourning in Ecclesiastes than a house of feasting or partying. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning, which is a memorial, it's a morgue, um, because the living take it to heart. The living take pain to heart more than they take pleasure to heart. We seek pleasure, we reject pain, but we learn from pain, we don't learn from pleasure. So God allows pain for that very reason. Um, and, And, you know... The, the cool thing, if you think about the overall biblical narrative, um, you could say, well, it must be nice to be a God who lives in heaven and doesn't have to suffer pain. No, he just has to watch us, which is pretty painful, i got to imagine, um, watching what the human race does every day to each other and in our own hearts and minds. That's a painful thing to envision. But then he also came into this world and he suffered pain. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, 
it says. Here's his, here's his capstone, Jesus, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, he's, he's felt pain, you know. Um, so he knows what pain feels like, but it produces character if we let it, or it produces pretty bad character if we let it. So we have to receive it properly. All right. Um, many modern churches have landed on the issue of homosexuality, saying that we must love them, yet not affirm their lifestyle if they have not chosen celibacy. What does this look like practically? Oh, I don't know. I, I, uh, I say that, candidly, I say that with a heavy heart, I don't know. I don't say that flippantly, because I think um, this is going to be increasingly this question mark that a, a church like Redemption Church will face. That's a good way to articulate where we land. We say, it's community that we want to love. It is people that we want to love. It is not a, 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 an action or a style of conduct uh, the, it's something we can't affirm according to both the Old and New Testament. You know, when I talk to people, they'll say, well, in the Old Testament it said it was wrong, but it also said, like, shaving the sides of your face was wrong and tattoos and cotton wool blends and, you know, whatever else, you know. And, and I'm like, yeah, that, in the Old Testament it said that, but it also reaffirms it in the New Testament, right? Um, Jesus even affirms the issue of sexual immorality, referencing the Old Testament, so he even deals with the issue. Uh, Paul deals with it, you know, so it, it's in both testaments. And so we can't just simply say, well, because it's going to be so common, we have to lower the bar and just accept that that conduct. And I want to say conduct because the, the question has it, you know, for those who don't choose a celibate lifestyle, we're contending less about uh, where one's uh, attractions or affinities may lie. We're, we're not questioning that. We're, the Bible would affirm the act of, right? The act of, the homosexual act of, right? That's the thing that it speaks against. So we're not so much dealing with the person that says, man, I'm really conflicted, I, don't, I, I feel this way, and, but I don't want to act on it. We say, that's awesome, man, don't act on it, and struggle through those temptations and emotions, we got it. So when we act on it, that's where it converts into the sin issue, right? So we want to affirm that to act on it converts to the sin issue as much as anything. If I act on my inclinations toward greed, it converts to a sin issue. If I act on my inclinations toward my lust, it converts to a sin issue, so it's a sin issue in the action. Um, how do we love and reach people where they've they said, I, maybe they're saying, I love Jesus, but I'm also engaging in the action. What do we do with that? Uh, I, I think the hard part is to say, well, that's no different than if, like I got a friend of mine who loves Jesus and engaged in the sin action of adultery and continued to do so. What do you do with that? You keep bringing it back to that conduct as a sin issue. You have to be able to say that. Now, you may struggle with that the rest of your life. If you're willing to go on the journey and try to deal with that, awesome. If you're saying it's not a problem, it's not a sin issue, the only sin here is your Christian bigotry, uh, then obviously it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't play out, right? There, it's not going to fly because we can't change the standard, no matter how badly we want to. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm one of those guys that would love to say this standard isn't the standard, right? I would love to be able to say that because, man, then it takes away all the complexity of having to wrestle with how do we address this problem. Uh, but the reality is, Scripture is very clear between the Testaments on this topic, as much as many other topics it's clear on, and we can't just whitewash that. How that's going to play practically, I really don't know. I've already been in my mind saying, what happens when you see you know, a couple that comes to Christ, but they've been married for 10 years, and they have two adoptive kids? What do you do with that? How do you, how do you, how, how do you disrupt that family unit that's been together for a long time? You know, what does that look like for the kids and for them and everything else? I, you know? I don't know how you fully address that. I can address the, the, the actual thing that's a sin issue. I'd say, 
according to the Bible, you're, you're not supposed to come together sexually anymore. As to a family staying together, perhaps, perhaps you can stay together as a family. You, you know, and somebody's going to go, whoa, wait a minute. No, I just mean like, like last time I checked, I could move in with another dude and nobody would think anything weird of that. Right? You could actually have a roommate for your life and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's going to be the sexual activity again. So maybe that's how some of these families will have to face the future, because it will. Ten years, 20 years down the road, you're going to have full family units that are functional, and then they come to Christ. And then what? You know, and then what? Um, it's going to be tough. So I, don't, I, I see the problems. I don't have a lot of answers. Um, I know I, keep, I can pig it back to the act of that's the sin issue and, and try, to try to stay locked in there and less about everything about their relationship being a sin issue. And I think that's the cautionary tale because sometimes we'll say, well, everything about that relationship is sinful. No, a lot of, of, of a, a gay relationship is not inherently sinful, um, but there are certain activities in there that are. And, and I go, there, there's a lot of heterosexual things that aren't sinful, but sometimes there's activities in there that are, right? So it, it happens in all camps, and, and, and I think that's the thing we have to keep in mind, which is Jesus came to die for sins, and we want to call sin, sin, and people repent of sins and get away from their sins. Um, but sometimes that's more tactical than maybe strategic, too, and we'll have to kind of think about it that way. So it's going to be a trick in the future, candidly. Mm-hmm. Isn't he doing a good job? <clears throat> we noticed that of the three motorcycles on the stage, two are Yamaha. Does this speak to the righteousness of those who drive Yamahas? <clears throat> okay, I'm going to take you back. So I'm, 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 I need the charismatics in the room right now because I have the gift of tongues. Bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha. Right? Amen, 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 Pastor Matt. That's all I needed to say. All, all right. right, so... Is evolution compatible with Christianity? Um, it depends on what you mean by evolution and by Christianity. Um, you know, so um, we weeded that one down. So, no, I mean, here's, here's what I want to say about that. that those are, that's like a loaded thing, because as soon as you say Christianity and evolution, typically it's been Christianity versus evolution, and those words have a lot of different bandwidth depending on how you're using them, what you come out of a background, and everything else. So... Um, some people see the word evolution as uh, a synonym for atheism, right? Uh, and so you have that. Uh, and then you have uh, Christianity. You mean Christianity in the 20th and 21st century or Christianity at other times? Um, how they would view it, that kind of thing, or at least the topic of how old the earth is and how things came to be. So all of that's kind of a loaded phrase. So the hard thing for me to say, is it compatible or not compatible? It's like, well, what do you mean by those words and what is your framework? Um, that just got me out of answering. So um, that was beautiful. Now, here's, here's what I'd say. As, as a theory, like on paper, don't get into all the other stuff. On paper, when, when, when Darwin's theory first came out, uh, the Christian church did not flip out about it. I mean, you have guys like B.B. Warfield, like one of the most conservative, well-known scholars of his generation, look at that theory and he says, oh yeah, there's no big deal with that. There's no problem, Right? The church on the very early stages of that theory just didn't have a problem with it. And part of the reason is because the church historic has not been as dogmatic about the scientific mechanics of how the world came to be. They just never were. You go back to uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce his name, um, and he wrote about the creation of the world. And he wrote, hey, you know, when these six days, they're not literal six days. These are epochs of time, right? So... 
250, 300, 350, 400 AD, the church was not seeing a literal six days. I mean, they, it just it wasn't material to them because they didn't look at the creation account of Genesis and think in terms of scientific materialism. They thought in terms of, oh, well, these are descriptors of what cultivates a thriving, growing world, and however God did that, this is just a nice kind of theological and poetic way of saying it, and that's just the way the church sort of envisioned the Genesis text. Since that time, and then you get through the early stages of the theory of evolution and kind of the church's eventual response, it's so polarized now uh, that they've just gone to war for years and years and years and entrenched each other in this idea that says, you know, the Bible and, and evolutional theory stand opposed, right? We've kind of created the climate of deep opposition. You, you can't reconcile them. Um, but that wasn't really kind of where it started. Now, part of that opposition bleeds deeper than the actual topics. It just turns into, I hate religion, so I just volley at it. I hate science, so I just volley at it. They're atheists, and so we hate them. I mean, it's just that stuff that happens, right? That's created the mess. If we just back way out of all of that for just a minute, here's what we will do well to enforce. Um, the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe, and he's personally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The details of all of that, we should be cautious with our dogmatism, right? Across the board. Because I remember when I first came into this Christian gig, it was absolutely six literal days into discussion. And then it sort of evolved um, into, into guys like the Discovery Institute, right? I love those dudes at the Discovery Institute. They're based out of Seattle, very much fight for kind of the intelligent design, the God of the Bible's creator of the universe. And those are the first guys to say, yeah, but it's not six days, 6,000 years ago. So they detached themselves from that. They said there's just too much overwhelming evidence to show that it's older, whatever else. They don't contend for evolution. They contend for kind of this micro-creationism, right? Where God just keeps creating new little increments all along the way. I'm like, that looks a lot like evolution. That's weird. Um, you know, but they're, no, 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 it's spontaneous creations. Just billions of spontaneous creations. I'm like, oh, okay. Instead of, okay, whatever. All right, I got it. Um, don't argue. All right. So, um, but that's them, right? So, you know, you got the kind of the traditional young earth creationists, and now you have these new old earth creationists with the creationism that's very different than the young earth guys and most of the evangelical church globs on the guys now like you know the discovery institute and things like that because they kind of go yeah that's that's a little bit more reasonable both to scripture and to the fact that god testifies in two two books or two two sources of revelation right go back to psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of god and the scriptures reveal his his heart and truth to humanity so God is declaring both in creation and in Scripture, and so we're not going to say, well, Scripture is more truthful than creation, right? Creation and Scripture are both truthful, and our job is to try to interpret both Scripture and creation. And you know what we kind of suck at? Both. Um, I mean, we do. We're not great at it, you know? And so that's where I think the humility in there is key. And, and to say both, I'm, I'm interpreting both as well as I can in the power of the Spirit, but I want to be gracious in that. Um, and my default is the God of the Bible has created the universe personally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Now, as to the scientific aspect, let's continue to see where this is going, but we still default to the God of the Bible has created the universe and Jesus Christ is his personal revelation. Um, I, I think that's a really healthy place to be, more than even siding up in any of those camps. You know, and I think always looking and reading, I think it's great to do that. Um, so therefore, from that, however the earth has continued to bloom and grow and populate and all of that, can't wait to ask him someday, right? Can't wait to ask him um, and fully get that. 
Um, I just think you have to maintain the God part. And I think this helps, especially students going off to college, because what happened in a lot of my generation is that people went off to school and they felt like once they got to biology 101 and their faith was challenged, they had to make a decision. I either accept science or I accept my Christian heritage growing up. You know, and I don't think we should create that kind of polarization even to have to make that kind of decision. I think you can totally uh, have Jesus and the God of the Bible and embrace a lot of scientific ideas, or at least the idea that science is trying to solve those problems, right? You don't have to swallow everything, but you go, it's trying to solve those problems, let's think critically about it. Because here's the great thing about science, it is hypercritical of itself, too. I know Christians sometimes don't believe that, they think it's just this club that self-preservates. Um, it's critical of itself. There's guys right now punching holes in evolutionary theory that are atheist guys. Their thing isn't a theological motive, it's nah, Darwin missed some stuff, and so they're punching some big science holes in it right now. All right, that's great. That's what science does. It, it tries to self, self-regulate. So I, I think you can let it be that way too. So is it compatible, non-compatible? Part of it is how you're approaching it. I think it's a compatibility problem. So. All right. The Bible and Jesus himself refers to himself as the son of man. Why is that when he's God? Um, Jesus is the perfect missionary right? I mean, we think, we talk about that a lot, that God is a missionary God, since Jesus is missionary into the world. Jesus needs to speak to the culture he's in where they're at to move them where they need to be. That's no different than what a pastor does today when he goes into a community, he meets the community where it's at, then he grows them where the community needs to be. A missionary goes into a foreign culture, meets them where they're at, grows them to where they need to be. So Jesus comes to this highly Jewish culture. They think about a coming Messiah, particularly out of the book of Daniel, that refers to the coming Messiah as the son of man. Uh, and he uses that title, right? I'm going to leverage that title. That gets them thinking about Messiah, but not in a hyper-threatening way, right? Kind of familiar, oh, okay, well, let's, let's kind of see more. So that's why he uses the title. They would have understood the title as a loaded type of title, and then he can move them. Well, here's what this fully really means as time goes on. Uh, of course, the, the nation of Israel rejects that for the most part. The disciples embrace it, take it to the Gentile world that eventually goes, oh, and then we can, he can cycle it further down the road, coming to this conclusion that Jesus is fully God in human form. But he meets them where they're at, and then he leads them to where they need to go. That's really why he uses the phrase and title. I made up for time on that one. You're good. Because that long-winded science one that half the people are like, what is he saying? You're awesome. You're doing great. He's smoking weed because it's legal. All right. So, oh, my goodness, dude. I know. Oh, if you flip that thing out, you're done. For oh, I know. Oh, I, yeah. You're done. I'm like, right now even, I'm like, hey, Scott's drifting. Yeah. yeah no. So, man. Um, how are you handling your daughter's teenage years? I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, Ellen and I just taught this parenting class, the, the last one, the other night, and, and we were talking about just teenagers in general. And, you know, when, when you have toddlers, they're, they're, you know, they demand a lot of energy because they have energy, right? So they're all over the place and they make messes and everything else. And, and, but you have a certain level of the ability to have control. Um, as they get older, you lose control and you're left with influence, right? And so I think the teenagers, boys or girls, it doesn't matter. It's harder to operate in the scope of influence. It takes a lot more time, a lot more thinking questions where you're asking them questions and interacting. Um, so the hours on point are more with teenagers uh, than they are with little ones as far as like the mentally draining stuff. Um, and most teen parents of teenagers I talk to right now, I was just talking with one yesterday even, 
It's just more exhausting, I think, to have teenagers because of that. Even when they're great, I love my kids. My kids are pretty solid kids, actually. My daughters in particular are, you know, because Grayson's just hitting, hitting the teen years. Uh, but the girls have been in it for a little while. And, you know, you have your things and your hiccups and your challenges. But overall, they've been really great, but it's still, it can be pretty tiring at times because you're engaged in a lot deeper conversations. Uh, they're processing at a whole different level. They're facing the kinds of uh, emotional, physical ideological challenge and change that comes with the teen years. Um, and so I would say, you know, I'm facing it with a lot of prayer, um, a lot of reflection. Um, what might surprise people is uh, I'm way more comfortable with my girls than I thought I would be. As far as, you know, like when Honor got her, her license, for example, and the first day she took off, I was remarkably like at peace with that. I was nervous about the, the training of driving. I was fine when she got her license. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, but I think you just take it prayerfully. I, I take it one day at a time. Um, there are things, especially with the girls, where I, I just, I, it's deer in the headlights, you know, like they'll come to me and they'll be like, there's this problem. And they said this, and I can't believe they did that. What do you think about that? And I'm just like, boom. Yeah, like, I, I don't know what to do. Ellen, you know, um, <laughs> there's speaking woman gibberish. I don't. I don't know how to interpret and I wouldn't give good advice because there's also that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Scott sent me to see this video this week. It's not about the nail. If you've seen that video, it's not about the nail. Yeah. Um, have daughters. All right. So, you know, like, well, all you need to do is go and talk to them. Dad, I don't need to go and talk to them. I'm talking to you because I can't talk to them. And I'm like, you don't want me to help, do you? You just want me to listen. All right. Got it. All right. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I think I'm learning how to navigate that as I go. Um, I'm, I'm not the gun-toting dad with my daughters, particularly. What I've done instead is I've trained them on uh, small arms fire. So, um, and then I'm just getting them a concealed carry, and it's good. So um, if that boy hits on you, you shoot him in the face. Because if I do, I'll go to jail. If you do, you might even be a hero. All right, so um, to arm your girls, it'll go well. So there, there's how I'm coping with teenage girls. Yeah. Nice. You got uh, maybe two more in you? Sure I right. do. I don't even know what time it is. So, uh, Is it possible to commit an unforgivable sin? Yes, because there is one in the Bible. Um, is it possible for us to commit it? Probably pretty tough, but we can create an application to it. So uh, Jesus rolls in in Matthew chapter 12, and he's casting out demons. And the Pharisees see him casting out demons, and they say he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, right? He's casting out demons by Satan. And Jesus looks at them and says, basically, you guys have committed the unpardonable sin. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. What he means by that is they have equated the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus to cast out demons as demonic itself. And his point is, you are so hard, you can't see up from down. You are so dead set against me and everything God is doing in and through me that you see the activity of the Holy Spirit and you take it to the worst place possible. You say it's Satan. If you're that hard of heart, you are that closed of mind, you are that irritated against my ministry, it's unpardonable. You've just gone to the darkest place you can ideologically, and that's going to drive everything you do. So the impardonable sin, then, that's in the Bible is the sin that you are so hard you equate the work of God with the work of Satan, right? It's a pretty far place to go. Now, contextually, because it's the only time it comes up, we'd say contextually the way you commit the unpardonable sin is you're identifying the work that Jesus does as satanic work, 
that's unpardonable. Some would say because of that, it could only be done in the ministry and life of Jesus. You can't do it today. I think by way of extension, though, the unpardonable sin is you don't equate Jesus as God and you don't equate Jesus as doing the work of God. You say it's Satan or nothing or I don't believe it or whatever else. That's an unpardonable sin in that you didn't ask for forgiveness for it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? In that sense, disbelief is an unpardonable sin if you stay in disbelief because you're not asking. Um, that's kind of an extension of the idea, but I think it probably kind of gets a little bit closer to what the problem was. So most of us, I mean, we go, we typically think, well, is murder an unpardonable sin? Is rape an unpardonable sin? Is, you know, embezzlement? Is what? No, those are all pardonable. The craziest thing about the gospel of God's grace is Jesus comes, he lives, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead to forgive all of our sin, not by us earning our way to heaven, but by him saying, you know what? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Repent of your sins. Even the ones you think are unpardonable, I can pardon them. 100%. That's the good news of Jesus, right? He can 100% forgive all of those sins. So we might have literally tens of thousands of sins that we think aren't even pardonable, and he says, I can forgive those, right? The only sin that's never getting forgiven is the sin that says, you know what? I don't believe, and I don't want to be forgiven for something I don't believe in anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course it's unpardonable. You didn't ask for pardon, right? Everything else can be pardoned. Right? So... That would, be, that would be the center right there. All right, last one. There are several places in Paul's letter, letters where he says, this is my opinion and not from God. How can this be scripture? If all scripture is how is God breathed, how can this be? Um, the first part of that is, I think there's only maybe one or two times Paul says it, so he doesn't say it often. And where he says it, it's very interesting. Like in 1 Corinthians 7 is the primary one. The other one's pretty sketchy if he's quite saying that. So, um, so I'll go to the 1 Corinthians 7. And it seems that the church in Corinth asks a question. So their question is, what did Jesus say about marriage? This is the question. Because they, they got all kinds of problems. They've got live-ins and divorce and remarriage and people waiting to get married. And they have a big famine in the region at the time. So should they get married? Because then you have babies and they're going to be starving. There's all this complexity. So they go, what did Jesus say about marriage? So Paul says, here's what the Lord said about marriage. But then the Lord didn't say everything about marriage, right? You go to like Matthew 19. uh, That's probably the main place Jesus speaks on marriage. And so Paul says, here's what Jesus said about marriage. Now he says, not what the Lord said, but what I say concerning this. Here's some added detail that he couldn't refer to Jesus on because he didn't have anything from Jesus to refer to. When Paul shifts from not the Lord, but I, he's not saying, we just went from inspired to not inspired. He's saying, I can tell you what Jesus said. Jesus didn't answer some of your questions, so here's what I can tell you about your remaining question. That's all Paul's saying. We get into this kind of not the Lord, but I, oh, see, Paul's now taking place and precedence over the Lord and... No, no, he's just saying, I answered everything Jesus talked about, now I'll answer some things that Jesus didn't talk about. All of that still is inspired by God, right? Still inspired by God. That's all Paul's doing in that sense. So it isn't, you know, here's, here's my out of left field, don't count it as, as important as Jesus. He's just kind of segregating it into those two kinds of ideas because that's their question. What did Jesus say? I'll tell you what he said. He didn't talk about this. I'll tell you what I think about that. So, yeah. Well done, Pastor Matt. Good questions.